Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome once again to the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We have another great panel today, investing in global sports, creating value while building dynasties. Our panelists today are Mitch Lasky, partner at Benchmark and co-owner of LAFC. We have Jerry Cardinal, who is the founder and managing partner of Redbird Capital Partners. We have Steve Paliuka, who is the senior advisor at Bain Capital, co-owner and managing partner of the Boston Celtics. Moderating today is Saj Cherian. He is the head of Fanatics Ventures, um, and I should have introduced myself earlier. I am Bob Hayes, a second year MBA at MIT Sloan. So uh, you know how this works at this point. 10 minutes for questions at the end. Our hashtag, as you can see up here, is sports investing. It'll be on the side TVs the entire time. Get those questions in. We'll do our best to answer them. And with that, I will turn it to you, Saj. Great. Thanks, Bob. Excited for our all-star panel of sports industry leaders, each of whom is a team owner and an investor. Uh, I call them all-stars because I've had the privilege to uh, interview uh, each of them, each of our esteemed speakers over the course of my seven years as moderating this panel on investing in sports. But today is the first time that I have all three of them Steve, Jerry, and Mitch on the same stage. Uh, we'd like to discuss skyrocketing valuations, um, evolving ownership models, and uh, increasingly global investment opportunities. Uh, now this room, as I look out here, is full of aspiring sports investors and perhaps even some team owners. Uh, so let's get to know our panelists and how they got their start in, as investors in sports. Uh, Steve, Garden fans know you as the managing general partner of the Celtics, and, uh, but uh, how many know that you got your start uh, at basketball at Duke? Well, hopefully not that many because I was the worst player on the worst Duke team ever, uh, and uh, that, that record won't be broken like Bob Beeman's long jump. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was really into basketball in, in high school, and and uh, went down to Duke and was fortunate to play on the freshman team there. It lasted a couple of years. Then I realized I, you know, at six feet tall and, and uh, with limited athletic ability, the only way I'd get involved in sports was to get a team. So, so I, I, I bared down and got an accounting degree at Duke. Got it. And then, so when did you start investing in sports? Well, I, I had looked at a lot of things. I was looking at, at, at football teams, actually. And then uh, um, a good, good friend from... My kid's school, Wick Grosbeck, called me and said that he had a line in and buying the Celtics, and would I partner with him on that? And I immediately said yes, because I love basketball as well. And back then, uh, as you guys know, the landscape was very different in 2002. Uh, we, uh, we had a deal to purchase the team. It was a record price at 360 million people. The Globe didn't help us because we were raising money, and the headline was, venture capitalists pay record price for team. And the team was basically breaking, breaking even, losing money. So people thought we were nuts because you, you, know, you paid infinity times, you know, times the earnings. But we really did it because we wanted to bring back a championship to Boston. We both love sports, right. and, uh, and it was kind of a labor of love. Did we ever think it would climb to these heights? We, we didn't. But, but we had a gut feeling it was a great thing. It was a great community asset. And certainly the, the Boston Celtics, as I grew up, um, was, was just such a storied franchise, and, and we wanted to bring that back. Got it. So now, Jerry, we're a stone's throw from the Charles River. So um, tell us about your start on the water um, as, uh, as a member of Harvard's crew team. And uh, how did such success you know, lead you uh, to become an investor in sports and an owner of two, now three teams? Yeah, well, like Steve, you know, I was, I was uh, only six feet tall. And in rowing, that's a fail. 
Uh, so, you know, I was always being seat raced to get out of the boat, but, you know, uh, what you'll learn with rowing is more of it is mental than it is physical. So um, that, that sort of gave me the, uh, I, I think, the, uh, the pathway into finance and Wall Street. Um, you know, I, after Harvard, I went to Oxford and rowed in the boat race and, you know, really uh, found the love of, of that kind of competition. Um, the great thing about rowing is it really is the ultimate team sport and it's the ultimate amateur sport. I mean, it's like you, you spend all your time practicing for a six-minute race, or in the case of the boat race, a 20-minute race. Um, and if you're not, if you're not, if you guys know up here in Boston, if you're not rowing in sleet and rain and, and, and terrible weather, you know, you're not really doing it right. So all that kind of stuff, I, you know, they say, you know, participating in team sports is a, is a great way to sort of, you know, enter the, the work life, and I, and I t definitely subscribe to that. Got it. Now, Mitch, you grew up in warmer climes down in, uh, in South Florida. Um, how did you find soccer then? And um, I guess, uh, how did soccer find you more recently as the owner of uh, MLS's LAFC? Sure, so in the 70s, I, yeah, I was growing up in outside of Miami near Fort Lauderdale. And this was the era when the sort of the first attempt to bring soccer to the United States in the form of the NASL when Pele came over to play for the New York Cosmos. And we got a team in Fort Lauderdale, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. And, in those days, South Florida was not the South Florida it is today. It was, we were talking about this backstage, there was really nothing going on. So we would, my dirtbag friends and I would just go watch soccer on weekends. Um, and it kind of got into my blood and I followed it ever since. And then interestingly, my path into ownership was really prompted by the Sloan Conference. It's like I used to come starting in 09, I started coming just as a fan, just to learn thinking, hey, maybe there's some interesting thing going on in soccer that there might be a money ball approach to soccer that we could, be, that we could potentially try. So I spent a couple of years just sort of hanging out on the back benches at Sloan. And a friend of mine, Bennett Rosenthal, who was putting together the deal to bring LAFC to market, he called me up. He said, hey, so you go to that nerd conference every year in Boston. Why don't, can you come in and educate our new GM on best practices in soccer analytics? So I went in for a 30-minute uh, meeting that ended up going two hours. And at the end of that meeting, they called me in and said, hey, you really need to join the ownership group with us and be a part of this. And so that's how I ended up. So I owe a lot of it to Sloan. Wow. So it was an expensive trip. Very expensive. Yeah. Um, so there's hope for you know, some of the folks in this room. You could be sitting up on this stage uh, soon enough. Um, well, uh, Steve mentioned, uh, what, $360 million was, was how much you paid? Now, if you think about valuations, over the last year, we've seen record deals across leagues, including for another basketball team, the Phoenix Suns, selling uh, a record $4 billion. And the Commanders from my hometown potentially fetching a multi-billion dollar price um, tag starting with a six. So Jerry, what's, what's driving these soaring valuations? And are we in a bubble? Um, how do you value team assets? Well, there's a lot there in that question. We're definitely in a bubble, but it's not something that's new. I think we've been in a bubble for some time. Having said that, you know, um, I remember when the guys bought the Bucks at 550 and Tony bought the Hawks at 850. And I remember every, at every one of those transactions calling them and saying, what are you guys doing? I mean, I think I even said to Facitelli, I said, can you imagine the Bucks being worth a billion dollars if you just want to make a double? And, and look at where we are. So on the one hand, I say that you know we've been in a bubble for a while. On the other hand, you know it's defying Darwin. I mean, it just keeps going up, right? And so the question really then is, well, why is that? And and, and what's happening that I'm not crazy about is there's, there's this facile notion that I'm starting to hear, and it's always around this concept of, you know, sports as an asset class. And I would be I would tell you that at least from my perspective, the moment you start talking about sports as an asset class, 
yeah, everybody's got to stop for a minute and just say, hold on, you know, what, what's going on? Uh, and the reason for that is that, you know, I hear these, these very facile notions of, you know, it's non-correlated to the market, uh, relative to the S&P, the growth has been, you know, differentiated, uh, valuations keep going up, and yet, you know, when you look at the analytical rigor around these things, I mean, the equity research in sports is Forbes magazine, right? And it's kind of like LIFO. It's like you look at the last trade and you put a markup on it. These things now are, that may have worked 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I think today these are multi-billion dollar live, live event entertainment assets, and I think there's got to be a little bit more rigor. This concept that these things trade as multiples of revenue, I also think is, is somewhat concerning. I think these things should trade as multiples of cash flow, and that's the investment thesis ultimately that, that I try to apply when we look at these things, which is, you know, can you work your way into the money on an overpay, and it's got to be cash flow driven. Yeah, well, so Mitch. Let's, let's go to Forbes. You know, your team, the defending MLS champion LAFC, is worth a billion dollars, um, which I think is the distinction of the, the, the highest, you know, price uh, that they've put on an MLS team. Um, yeah. So you're probably not complaining about the run-up in team values, but I guess my question for you is, related to kind of Jerry's point, um, are you worried that we may be past peak sports and and, 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 and sort of hit, hit the peak? Yeah, two different questions. So first, I, I totally agree with, uh, with the last comments. And, and I think, look, Forbes, you know, saying that we're worth a billion dollars, these are the people that told you Donald Trump was worth a billion dollars, right? So I'm not sure that I necessarily put that much stock in Forbes's valuations of the football world. But um, nonetheless, I don't know that necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say we've gotten to peak sports, but I think there's some troubling things we need to be concerned about, particularly if you know, we are going to be valuing these things on a cash flow basis. It's like viewership, and again, media deals have driven a ton of the revenue in this space historically. You know, viewership among younger viewers is much harder to coalesce around things like cable television, et cetera, than it has been historically, and I think that's a concern we need to think about sort of long term. I mean, it's clearly affecting a lot of the sports other than the NFL, where I think they're, they're pretty solid in, in that regard. But certainly basketball and baseball um, have, have been affected by that. And we actually went to a pure streaming model in, in MLS this year, where Apple is going to be doing our, our, uh, all of our media. So um, yeah, in that regard, I, I, I don't think, I, I still think that these things trade you know, more like fine art, at least the ones in, in, uh, in the North American markets where there's some protection. Obviously, we, we're going to talk about this later when we talk about soccer globally, but I think promotion relegation puts a discount on anything but sort of the top teams in some of the, the first divisions in Europe that we don't experience as much in, in the United States. And while I can't really defend the billion-dollar Forbes valuation, I do think that the U.S. teams trade at a premium given that they're sort of protected assets. Well, Steve, um, how should we kind of reconcile sort of this debate? You know, on the one hand, you've got, you know, sort of as Jerry kind of no, no, noted, the, the scarcity of, of, of the teams on the, on the one hand, but then you've got, you know, sort of as, as Mitch noted, the fragility of this kind of media business model. It's not going to go up and to the right forever. Um, you know, how do, how do you think about valuing sports assets? Well, I think Mitch made and Jerry made great points, and, and one of the most important points is, it is different in the United States than it is overseas. Uh, the United States, you basically have a monopoly on the city of, of, of what, what, we, what your sport is, and you can't be relegated, um, which is great for stability for the investment. I, I think the second thing is um, we have been in a general bubble for assets, and interest rates, money costs nothing, and that has kind of also driven up 
the cost of, of, of any kind of trophy asset, which, which sports teams are. The kind of the diamond ring value has gone up substantially. But I think Jerry's right. Eventually, it's got to come back to some cash flow modicum because there are only so many um, uh, people that have 60 billion or 80 billion or, or sovereign wealth funds to buy these clubs, and you're going to run out of that at some point in time, and therefore you're going to have more problems with liquidity. So it's going to be driven cash flow. Now, on, the, on the positive side is the, the really interesting sports teams have now, the technology has changed the world. So instead of having tens of millions of fans, you can have hundreds of millions of fans. So you, know, you look at you look a club like Chelsea, um, you look at clubs like the Celtics. I, we, we played in Spain. We had a sold-out arena. There, there's 10,000 people in, in Celtics uniforms at the game. And they knew all of our players and they knew us. So, so I think the globalization and the technology of globalization where you can watch Italian football, football games, you can, you can watch uh, uh, Premier League games, you can, you can watch Celtics overseas, that's really also driven the, the size of the market and, and, and the monetizable base for the fans. So there are puts and takes. I think in general, assets, assets have, have blown up because of the low interest rates and the, the, the kind of quantitative easing for the last 20 years, and, and, and sports has benefited by that. So at some point, at some point there, will, there will be some kind of reckoning, and I think the teams that are, are managed solidly or disciplined and have cash flow will be the most valuable ones. And so we talked a little bit about um, kind of the media models uh, changing, but um, are you bullish, Steve, on um, new revenue streams such as online sports betting as you know a source of future values? I, I just think there's many, many revenue streams yeah. uh, from from streaming to to online betting, um, to to monetizing you know fans with extra shoulder programming and all those kinds of things. And so certainly the NBA and new geographies we've seen every year increases in, in those ancillary revenues, which used to be very small, and now they're a big, a big part of the mix. Um, I do think that you're going to have to be talking about some structural change for, 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 for many of the leagues, where uh, cer certainly some of the leagues have no cost controls, no caps uh, overseas. You develop players, and, and people buy the players you know, on, on the come. And I think that's just, that's just a, a really hard thing to, to sustain long-term because you're going to need competitive balance. Uh, part of the reason the NFL is the world's most successful league is they've ensured competitive balance and they, they, by, by having uh, appropriate salary caps and ways to operate the club and, and having a strict set of procedures, which I think has benefited all the clubs, um, the values of all the clubs. And I think other leagues are going to have to look at going in that direction. Got it. So, uh, you know, we, we started talking about... Uh you know, kind of going global. So let's talk about yeah, the teams across the pond. So uh, Jerry, Redbirds deal for AC Milan broke the record for the largest um, uh, soccer club ever, only to be shattered by Chelsea, you know, shortly thereafter. And now all eyes are on, on, so he got, he got a huge on Manchester he got United. A huge yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Talk to the guys at, at Man U. So, but, so Jerry, sounds like you're generally pretty bullish on European soccer. Uh, talk us about your journey, you know, through Buying Toulouse in 2020, I guess uh, into Fenway Group uh, with Liverpool in, in right. 2021. Now AC Milan in 2022. Um, you know, love your thoughts on you know kind of your general thoughts on you know how, how bullish you might be on yeah. European soccer. But also talk to us a little bit about, given that you've done these three club investments, are you do you have like a grand vision for this multi-club you know sort of platform play, or are you looking at each of these as individual assets uh, on their own? Okay, so I, my, my euphoria around European football is relatively recent. I, for years, was not interested in European football. Uh, my business model, investing-wise in sports, was always around the business of sports, and it was always partnering 
with the rights holder and creating terminal value businesses around those rights. So it started with the Yankees, as you know, and then the Cowboys and the Yankees with legends and the NFL with on location. It's, you know, and the players themselves with one team. It was the same model. And then five or six years ago, we, we said to ourselves, you know, why don't we look at vertically integrating and, and becoming the rights holder ourselves? So it was 20 years after Steve, and, and um, so we're always late to catch up. Uh, and, you know, there's ownership restrictions in the U.S. It's harder for institutionally formed capital to do that in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, there's none of those restrictions in Europe. But what the counter, though, in Europe is that you've got the transfer market and relegation. And then when you see an ecosystem that attracts sovereign states and, and oligarchs, you have to ask yourself, what are you doing? Uh, and I got to give credit to Billy Bean. I mean, Billy was the one who educated me. Billy's been around European football for 20 years, and he said, you know, you're not looking at it right. He said, you can do European football if you, if you approach it with the money ball mentality. And that's great because, it, you know, that basically says that, you know, you don't have to sacrifice performance on the field for cash flow or vice versa. And so that, that got it, you know, we spent five years basically uh, apprenticing and learning. And we thought we knew a lot about sports, but over there we felt we had to really do a deep dive. We met with close to 200 teams across basically every country, made our first investment in Toulouse. Uh, you know, and it was really data analytics driven. That was a great experiment. You know, the price talk on, on the team was 60 million euros. It got relegated. We bought it for 15 within, you know, the first year we sold our first player for 15. And you know we built it, and now it's in the middle of League One, um, and we got it promoted again. So that was a great experiment. We learned a lot. Great team. Then Fenway, something similar, you know, sort of migrating up to the larger teams. And then finally, to your point on on the control buy at AC Milan, look, I mean, I think AC Milan is one of the biggest brands in European football. It's um, you know Berlusconi was really the first oligarch, uh, and you know he was the George Steinbrenner of his time. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that surprised me was that AC Milan has the second most Champions League trophies behind Real Madrid. I, I hadn't really kept up with that. Um, but it's an undermanaged asset and, you know, everything in Italy and around Syria, there's a, that, you know, Syria has a right to have a seat at the world table and AC Milan, I think, and some of the others have a right at that table. And it's our job to go do that. And so we're going we're gonna to look at this thing, you know, the benefit for guys like Steve and me and others who you know have cut our teeth over here and can bring really best practices and a you know in a, a mentality to Europe, I think, can be very helpful. And you have to do that because what you're navigating over there is, I mean, it's it's a little bit of the Wild West only in that there is no uh, regulations on ownership, so anybody can go buy these things. And so you're seeing a pulling away of England from the continent and right. the institute and the corporatization of ownership in England versus whereas on the continent, the only two institutional owners on the continent, I think, are Redbird and Qatar in Paris Saint-Germain. Right. Um, so, you know, there's, there's definitely a navigation that needs to go on, but we like to invest around arbitrages. It's actually a yeah. really interesting, and I'd be curious of everybody's view on it on the panel, but to your point about, uh, about ownership in Syria and, and bringing some professionalism to, to it, which it, it was my experience as well, like having looked at a number of clubs to potentially invest in prior to doing LAFC over in Europe, mostly lower division teams to go through the, pro, the, you know, the promotion idea. And actually, interestingly enough, Billy Bean was, was advised me as well on yeah. some of the on, on some of those things. So it's funny to hear that he was also advising you when he was at AZ in, in the Netherlands. Um, but I, I think I think we're now at a point where American ownership in I, I don't know what it is in Syria, but I think it's more than half of the, it is. Of, of the eleven teams. of the twenty. Right. I think a couple got relegated, but eleven of the 20 eleven of the American. twenty there, and there's a there's a, a a large number of American owners in the Premiership. Although obviously, to your point, it, it is becoming a sport of kings, and, and and I don't mean that necessarily even in, like sort of metaphorically anymore. It's becoming a sport of you know the king of Bahrain, the king of Qatar, right. the king of Saudi Arabia. 
Um, literally a sport of kings. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see the American influence, I think, mm -hmm. on, on sort of club and organization, and whether or not we, it, it, it leads to a more rational salary capped, potentially, uh, probably not in the premiership, but maybe, maybe in some of the other European leagues. I'm curious what you, what you think about that. That, that, look, I, I know that we, we can control what we can control, and so we're, we're certainly going to run this with a tremendous financial discipline. I'm, I'm a big believer in, in Billy's view that you know we don't have to sacrifice performance for cash flow, um, and you know the biz, there's the on the field you know performance, and there's the off the field performance, and we can bring a lot to Syria. Steve and I are effectively our competitors, but also partners in Syria. We were talking about this. Um, the Premier League is different. But you know, there's also a very interesting dynamic in terms of the continent versus England, and and how we all want to. There's I, I look at this as two levels of arbitrage. I think there's an arbitrage within Syria, and there's an arbitrage, you know, in the continent and and England. And you know, we love that. Um, that's a huge opportunity for our kind of capital to be transformative in those settings. Yeah, I agree. It's a it's an incredible brand of football in Syria. You know, clubs like AC Milan, you know, Napoli today can beat anybody. Mm. Could win the, could win the whole thing, and. Uh, the saving grace is, is with good management, there are plenty of soccer players out there, plenty of football players out there, and if you're disciplined, you get the right ones, you can compete. And I think directionally, the Premier League and these leagues are stepping back saying, we've got to keep competitive balance. And so they beefed up financial fair play rules. Um, they're, they're, they've beefed up investigations and making, making sure people are playing by the rules. So we're going in the right direction. I think we need to go in the right direction quicker. Um, and that'll benefit all the teams, you know, both at both at the Serie A level, yeah. which I think is undermarketed and, uh, and undervalued because of the quality of the soccer, and and then and then the whole the whole European football. It's hard, though, to have the, the the big issue is it's hard to do it in one market because players are fungible, to the Premier League, back to the Italian league, and so there's going to have to be some kind of global global situation that that benefits everybody. It's also chicken and egg. I mean, there's a 3 to 1 media revenue differential between England and Italy. Yep. There's a 2 to 1 media revenue differential between La Liga and Italy. That's that it, you shouldn't have that disparity, but we got to address that because that's that's the sort of tip of the spear of why this thing then it just snowballs into then all the money, all the economics, all the players, you know, go to England and then everyone else gets flown behind. So, you know, and the, but, but the good news is it, it, it may happen on, on an England basis because they're concerned about it as well. The issue they have is, is having you know, six parental contenders or seven and, and, then, and then nobody else and everybody going up and down, which, which that wasn't the fundamental premise of creating the, all the different leagues in, 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 in Great Britain. And they've done that, that, that big study on it. And they may reallocate money to the lower clubs and, and, and also have rules about having, uh, you, you know, it's kind of sad not to have a lot of homegrown players. Right. It's great in Italy that, you know, you know kind of 60 or 70% of the players are from Italy. We have a mix of, 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 of foreign players. But if you get to a situation where, where no one is from the country, I think it's probably not great for the league, not, not, not great for the thing. So, so you, may, you may see um, some movement More just in the Premier League to, to protect yeah. the lower teams, to protect the players from England who want to play in England. Yeah, the the valuation to your to the earlier discussion. I mean, I just took a look at it at an English club, sort of maybe bottom six currently in the Premier League, that's uh, had an opportunity for a, for a significant investment, and so I did the the diligence on it. And the valuation distinctions between the tiers, even in the Premiership, is remarkable. Like the top six are four billion and up, from six through twelve, it's sort of 800 million to about 400 million, and then below 12, it's under 400 million, which is, 
I mean, it's just an incredible disparity within, within, within a single league with, with, you know, with roughly equivalent revenue sharing. Obviously, there's distinctions based on where you place in the league, but still, it's remarkable. Yep. Yeah, at Fanatics, we see the same, like in terms of the jersey sales, right? You know, the, I mean, it's just it's extraordinary uh, dis disparity uh, between that. Uh, Steve, you, you talked uh, a little bit earlier, and you've been talking at Sloan for years about owning the Celtics as owning a community asset. Um, and so now you, you know, you obviously have plenty of experience, you know, here in Boston, but tell us about, you know, kind of the journey to actually going to a historic city, you know, in Italy and, um, uh, in, in a historic club and, um, and, and going, you know, as an American and, uh, you know, what does it mean to, to have that community asset being an American and, and how do you feel, um, you know, you're, you're able to kind of shoulder that responsibility? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I, what I really liked about uh, Atalanta, and I think AC Milan has aspects of this as well, is it is a fabric of the community asset. And so the, all those, the, you have, you have uh, AC Milan, Inter Milan, um, our, our club Atalanta within 45 minutes of each other, and people live and die with the clubs. And, and so, uh, we, we know it's more than just a, just a football team. It's part of, part of the community. So at the Celtics, the first day that we owned the team, I think they had $150 in the charity account. And so we formed uh, Boston Celtics Shamrock Foundation. And we've now, I think, given, given out you know, more than $25 million to the community. We've, we just started another thing called Boston Celtics United for Social Justice. Um, and our, our ownership group has, has committed uh, $2.5 million a year for the next 10 years to really, really focus on, on areas of social justice, um, criminal, criminal justice reform. So very powerful community asset. I think that same thing is going to happen in Europe and going to happen in, in Italy as we come in and say, say we've really got to give back to the community. And the fans are just as fanatic. Uh, you know, Atalanta kind of is like the Boston Celtics. The Boston Atalanta is the same for Bergamo, the community there. And so I think you're going to see more and more outreach, more and more working with the community. And you get into a virtuous circle because the, 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 the community benefits by that, and then you have more fans, so it's, it's great for everybody. Yeah, that's great. So, and, and luckily, Jerry and I happen to have uh, names with vowels on the end, so I, don't, I, don't, I, think, that, I think that helped us. I, I, when I got off the plane you know, to go to Bergamo, and I looked around, and, and like everybody looked like me. I felt at home immediately. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Came back to my grandfather's roots in, in Italy in 19, 1918. Yeah, so you're, you're able to kind of you know, kind of sort of link, uh, link your, your heritage, you know, sort of back. Did, did, did the fans, does that resonate with the fans? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, as Jerry knows, Italians, you know, you know love Italians from all over the world. And, uh, and so it, it resonated greatly. And, and it's just a fantastic culture. I love every, every second that, that I spend there. And uh, they're very open, you know, they're very open to, to, to new ideas and creativity. And, and, um, and they're some of the most passionate, passionate fans in the world. Yeah, no, it's great. Sometimes so, too passionate, right, Jerry? Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> and the media, the media, yes. the media is. You can uh, never have too many passionate fans, right? The media, uh, you know, the media in Europe. Uh, I know when I looked at the Chelsea Football Club, I, I think that was the whole in the whole auction. It was front page headlines yeah. every day yeah. globally um, because there's such interest in, in football globally. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, the evolving ownership structures. Um, we've got new entrants joining, which was once the. Uh, you know, sort of the preserve of billionaires, right? So take private equity funds like Arctos, Dial, Dynasty, they're all buying minority stakes uh, in the teams. Uh, you know, Steve, let me start with you. Um, 
is the NBA and your fellow team owners, are they uh, embracing this evolution? Or do you see this as another driver of maybe this boom in valuations that we were talking about? You know, absolutely. I think Adam Silver has been uh, just a visionary commissioner. I, I can't say enough good things about Adam on how thoughtful he's been and progressive he's been on all, all aspects. Um, you know, part of the constraint, and, and certainly constraint in other leagues have been that if you don't allow institutional investors with these values being so hard, I, it's hard to find enough, you know, market people to buy clubs for three and a half, you know, four billion dollars is a very, very small market. So having that liquidity provided by, by firms like Arctos, who, who's a very knowledgeable and, 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 and great firm and Redbird Capital before that, um, is, is, is very good for the leagues and Adam has recognized that. So there are, there are, um, there are structures put in place to protect the clubs and what they can do and can't do. And you have to make sure if you have an investment firm that's multiple uh, clubs that they can't be sharing information. But the NBA's put on those all those appropriate pr protections, and, uh, and and then that has an, increased the value of the clubs because there's more liquidity, more capital available. So Jerry, what's your take on this new strategy in private equity? Well, I, you, you have to define private equity too. Right, there's, right. there's different types of, of of these these asset aggregators. Look, I mean, part of the job of the commissioners, and I agree with your comments on Adam. Um, part of the job of the commissioners is to continue this linear progression in valuations. Um, I, I think it's going to be hard to do that. Um, at these valuation levels unless you institutionalize the capital. Um, and so there's only so many deci-billionaires that can show up and, and you know, keep this, this progression going. So I think there's, I think this is, I don't think, you know, the leagues are going to turn on a dime, but I definitely think there's room now with the, given how sophisticated these assets are, given the scale and breadth of them, given what the opportunity set is going forward, I think there's absolutely room for professional investing. Uh, and institutionalized investing, um, but you know I think they're going to they're going to walk before they run. So you're not going to see it on a dime. Some of these so the, these some of these asset aggregators that buy minority stakes and teams do provide a liquidity function. You know one of the, the tough things about sports. You know sports is only what it is today, relatively recently. It, it wasn't really that way before. These were hobbies for relatively wealthy people, and so the, and and there's a lot of minority owners in these things that really don't have an ability to get out. Um, there's no there's no liquidity. In, 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 uh, for minority investors. And so that's the first step towards maybe the entry point for professional investing. And I think it makes an important point about differentiating the funds as well, because uh, funds like Arctos, um, Redbird, um, Dial have specialized in the area and they, they know the ownership, they know the, the, the ball game. I think when, when general private equity gets involved, you know, you have to have a line, certainly bank capital, we would not buy a sports team uh, because we have to have alignment with our investors. And, and you know, we're telling our investors we're gonna get a 20% rate of return. We're gonna look at the fundamentals. We're gonna look at cash flow. We're gonna look at, 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 at transforming businesses. So, so I think to, to buy equity investments in sports teams, you, you, have to, you have to have an investor base that says, we're buying into a, a rare asset class, more like art. And you're looking at, at, at appreciation more like art than you are at, at, at business building. And so, so funds like Arctos, their clients know that, and they look for capital preservation and a lower rate of return than you would as a general private equity firm. Now, I'm not saying it would never happen, because maybe there's some, some great turnaround situations where you can make the numbers work, right. but it's very hard to make the numbers work on a private equity basis to, buy, to control the club and buy equity when you're buying a club for $4 billion, $5 billion, because to triple your money, there's not much debt involved in these things. So, so to triple your money, the club's got to be worth $15 billion, and maybe that'll happen someday, but that seems like a large number to me. Yeah. That makes sense. So I Mitch, what you guys. 
Uh, what I'd say is yeah. I, I agree with that. You know, we, we won't make an investment. My, my, our investment in, in the team side is we don't treat that differently than what we do on the business side or the business of sports. And so, you know, we, we won't make an investment where we're passive. We don't have our hand, uh, at least on the co-control. And, you know, as I said before, you know, we underwrite business plans going into these things so that we have an eye on how we're going to generate cash flow and we're going to rely on, on that and the way we do it on any of our other companies. The only question is, you know, liquidity or monetizing. And right, and you're, and you're a specialist in the area, so you know exactly. where the pitfalls are. Right. It's hard for a general private equity fund to look at one sports deal. Totally agree. Yep. So, Mitch, last year on this stage, uh, we were talking blockchain and sports, and both Steve and you talked about the high likelihood of a Dow um, owning a, a major sports team. Um, and a Dow, for, for those that don't know, is a decentralized autonomous uh, organization that lives on the blockchain. So uh, one year and one crypto market downturn later, uh, do you still believe in the potential of DAOs as sports owners? I think it's less likely today than it was. I think. Um, Wait, did Mitch say that, or I said you said that, right? No, I don't know if I said that. <laughs> I, I, I thought just, I was the skeptic. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, well, we, we were talking blockchain, and I think I think there was some agreement that that. Um, yeah, well, that DAO we'll have to was, roll the tape. There but. was a, a DAO actually yeah. buying a club, or actually participating in a second right. division Mexican club at the time, and right. I think that's what we were talking about a year that's ago, right. which was that concept of sort of selling. The, the tokens as basically a governance token for uh, for a potential club. I think it would work potentially for at a community level where some of these clubs like you know what the if you if you've watched the Welcome to Wrexham documentary for example like clubs at that level where they're really almost community assets and you could imagine sort of ownership at that level for the kinds of things we're talking about. I doubt I don't think that's really very likely. Any any. Uh... A any views? I would say it's, later? Def it's definitely less likely, you know, given, given the crash. I think a DAO is, is an interesting concept, though, because uh, it, it really is fan ownership. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's, 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 I remember way back when the Celtics were a limited partnership and people bought the shares not because of the value of the Celtics, it's because they wanted to have a share. I think it was $18 a share. The club value was maybe $30 million at that point in time. And, and it was $18 a share, and they have the certificate. Yep. And even when we bought the club, I think lots of people still have those certificates, never got, never got the money for it because they wanted the certificate versus the, the $500 you would have gotten for, for a share. So, so, so a, a DAO is maybe, maybe in the distant future when we really settle down in terms of regulation of crypto yeah, sure. and, 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 and the whole uh, digital money class, a DAO might become more acceptable and it might be a liquidity vehicle, not unlike a mutual fund, so a fan would have a small piece of a team and a representative, you know, on an advisory board to the team, and that would, you know, get our fans closer to us. If 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 everybody, if a million people in 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 Boston wanted to own a small piece of the Celtics, and a Dow could facilitate that, and we do that with with, with still running the club in a in a in a disciplined way, you know, I, I don't think it's out of the question. But I think there's a lot of wood to chop in general. Uh, we did, we just talked about this at the NBA Tech Summit uh, in general with regulation and, and what is digital money and separating digital money from Web3, separating that from tokens, and how do you regulate that so that actually this doesn't become something where, where fans get ripped off. Yeah. yeah. So let's move um, beyond sports ownership and talk about investments outside of teams and leagues. Uh, Jerry, Redbird's been investing in sports for years before you pursued the ownership angle. Uh, what non-team investments you know, um, in the sports space hold particular appeal uh, to you right now? And, you know, maybe walk us through how you differ your strategy of sort of non-team investments versus kind of the, the team ownership investments. Yeah, look, the, the, the non-team 
investing, as I said, is, is really what our, our bread and butter has been. Um, and the model hasn't changed since we created the Yes Network back in 2001. Um, you know, this, uh, things were, I'd say right now, more and more, there's a convergence of sports, media, and even a third leg of the stool, culture. Um, you know, culture in America is urban, culture in Europe is fashion. Uh, and, you know, it, it's all part of, as, as Steve said, I mean, you know, in, particularly in Europe, you know, these assets are now, they're, they're public-private partnerships in Europe. Over here, it's a little less that. Um, but, you know, you're seeing, it, it all comes down to monetizing intellectual property. These are great intellectual property assets. Uh, and you've seen the, the fragmentation, you talk about the Dow, I mean, you, you, the fragmentation of intellectual property down to individuals now, right? So we've even gone as far as, you know, partnering with Dwayne Johnson on the XFL or, or, or a partnering with LeBron on Fenway or even his media company, um, you know, Spring Hill. So we have, so I'd say our, our non-team stuff involves a lot of media. Um, you know, we've been playing the streaming phenomenon and the supply-demand imbalance coming out of original content production in Hollywood for a while. You know, the FANG stocks have disintermediated, you know, entertainment consumption, and that's dovetailed with the way consumers want to consume content. And so Sky, with Skydance, you know, the, our production business that we own with, the, with Larry Ellison, we did a joint venture with the NFL uh, to create a global sports production company called Skydance Sports. And so you should, you'll see a lot more of, of that kind of programming coming out of that collaboration around other rights. Obviously, we've got a great collaboration with LeBron and Maverick Carter on Spring Hill. Uh, and, you know, we own the Yes Network and we own Nesson through Fenway. Uh, and I think there's a tremendous opportunity there to help um, the commissioner think through a range of issues around the R this RSN phenomenon and how we might want to use that to not only fix the media uh, dislocation that's going on around the Sinclair assets, but also, you know, be a catalyst for how baseball might want to restructure itself. Drew, how do you, how do you think the Sinclair thing, you know, plays out? Look, I think, um, I think that, well, there's macro and micro. On a micro basis, I think uh, the, it's the creditors. Uh, and the question really is how do you get through this season? Uh, and I think they will find a way to get through the season, meaning that the games continue to get broadcast and the, and the teams, particularly the small market teams, get their media rights payment um, as part of a bankruptcy reorg. But then the question really is how do you defease the RSN model to a national model? I think that's where it's going. Um, and. Um, I think that you know we're going to try to be a catalyst for that. Yeah. Um, so it all comes back to uh, media. Um, so Mitch, at Benchmark, you guys have largely avoided investments in sports companies. Um, is it because you fundamentally don't see the ROI in sports, or Not is there so something fundamentally different? You know, with a more Silicon Valley model. You know, our model is very. Early. I mean, we're primarily earliest early. of early stage. I mean, not seed investors, but sort of first institutional money, essentially. So. Um, our model really hasn't proven that susceptible to a lot of what's happening in sort of the startup culture. And really, you think about it, there's like maybe four categories of companies that we've, that we've looked at over the years. So there's like, you know, your employer, um, you know, e-commerce, merchandising type stuff that's, that, that's sports related that we've taken a hard look at. Gambling, betting, fantasy has been sort of a category. And, there's been a couple of interesting uh, companies that have emerged out of that, but you know, re regulation is never our friend in the in the in the early stage venture business. So we've always been a little reticent to, in, at least in the in the in in the past where fewer states had legalized it. You know, you were really talking about almost a state by state campaign to try to try and go to market, and those things are tough to do with the limited capital of a of an early stage startup. Um, you know, there's been sort of some of the analytics and. 
kind of sports performance companies, training, those kinds of things, even fitness to a certain extent has been a category we've taken a really hard look at. And then some of the, the sort of more outliers, you know, we talked about the, the NFT stuff. We, we did a collectibles thing called So Rare over in, 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 uh, in Paris, um, which is, again, sports related. It's more on the intellectual, you know, sort of a way to monetize the intellectual property side of sports. So mm-hmm. I think those are the kinds of things we've looked at. And I would just say that those things have, haven't been as susceptible to investment, let's say, as some of these media businesses or even a, a team ownership, for that matter. And those are places we really can't play. So I think that's part of the reason we've stayed on the sidelines as a firm. Yeah. And we, yeah, we've invested in bank capital in a, a company like Deltatre, which is, which is a, a, a streaming infrastructure software platform, which I think is going to be really big as, as these clubs want to do their own yeah. thing. You know, right now, um, Bamtech was the leader in streaming, and Disney bought them, and they don't sell to other people. So right now, like, for example, Paramount Plus had to go out and, and as a TV station, build their own system to stream, which, which kind of sporadically works. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the greatest. But... but Deltatre has, has built a, a package system, not unlike 30 years ago when I started, every, every company had their own accounting system custom built for $20, $30 million. You could buy a package now to do all that for $5 million. And so Deltatre has done that. There's also payments companies uh, like TAP, my family office has done, that, that's a startup company that's doing um, cards that you, you, can, you can use to gamble or you can use to buy um, one or two NBA games. So, so that's the whole financial services part of the sport area. And then obviously the merchandise and the products. My family also invested in a company called um, Noble, which is a, a niche um, growing very quick, quickly, a niche uh, training shoe company um, you know, for workout, workout fitness. Got it. Um, so let's talk about the, the leagues as, as, as sports uh, uh, investors. Are, are, are they good at investing in sports companies? Um, the NBA seems to be slower than maybe some of the other leagues at actually taking equity investments or investing uh, in, uh, in sports companies? You know, I actually think the, the NBA hasn't been slower. Um, they, they've had investments in the, the theory at the NBA level with Adam Silver um, is if, 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 if a company can benefit by the NBA association, you know, we can, we can put some funds together and ride some of the equity upside. So, you, you know, as anything, you need a diversified portfolio. The NBA doesn't purport to be an expert on what's going to win or lose, but if it gets through the screen that the NBA teams want to use it, and the NFL has done the same thing, so then why, why don't we invest into it as well? You've got to do it on a diversified basis. It can't take over the league operations. But I think net-net, it, if, if it gets through that screen that it's appropriate for the NFL or the NBA, it's probably something that's interesting on a diversified basis to invest into. Got it. Look, I think the NFL has done a good, very good job. They have an entity called 32 Equity um, that each of the 32 owners contributes to, uh, and they've done. Um, they, they've been very active, and we partner with them to create on location. Um, but look, I think this also goes back to the dynamic between the leagues and the teams. Uh, and I personally believe that the leagues, in and of themselves, right now, the leagues are portals for media deals. Um, they're sort of pass-throughs. I actually think it's a missed opportunity. I think. But you know, you you would definitely have a view on this from the NBA side. But I think the league should have their own balance sheet, their own P and L, and and they should be able to. But again, you had to figure out what the right balance is between that versus the teams, because you know there's a there is a subtle tension between the teams who, you know, these team valuations have, have, have escalated to such a degree that, you know, I always joke that it's like Putin and the oligarchs, except in this case the oligarchs have taken over, right? And and so what's the value of the league? But I do think there is a value that the league can. 
can, uh, you know, importantly um, uh, develop relative to the teams where they can have a balance sheet, they can do investing that maybe, you know, the individual teams wouldn't do, but in aggregate, you know, it, it, it helps put some of these investments. And look, Adam has done some of that in David Cern. They were early in China. People, you know, many people complained when they invested in, in China, and China then became, you know, a large opportunity. Right. They invested in Europe, the games in Europe, pretty early, money losing, but now, you know, yep. highly, highly, highly accretive. So um, I think Jerry's right that, that there's a place for that, and, and we ought to continue to go up or not. Look, we're in a completely like bizarro world in MLS because we're a single entity, right? So we, we don't even technically own our own club, right? We own a piece of the league. There's, you don't have that subtle tension that Right, exactly. Like we have, we, well, we have a different kind of tension, right? We have the tension between the ambitious owners, which I would put us and a couple of, of, of our peers in, in the category of, and the owners who have been riding the valuation wave and who don't really want to invest who just want to own the, the That's true of all sports, by the way. I'm sure. Of all leagues. Yes. Right. No, no, no. Right. It's particularly you're not, acute you're not, for us because you're not unique. We, it's yeah. definitely acute in, in MLS. Yeah. Sure. It, it's right. really acute in MLS because the league, you know, the, the, the product strategy committee, the, the people who make the rules about how much we can spend essentially include people who don't want to spend. Right. So, it, you know, right. we, we, we get a lot of, we have a lot of friction yeah. in terms of, of the league's governance. It, it seems like the big, you know, strategically for the MLS, the issue is going to be, it goes way back to Pele. Everyone is watching Serie A, Premier League, mm -hmm. because the best players in the world are there. Everyone's watching NBA because the best, best foreign players. players come to the NBA. So the MLS has to figure out how you get a mix of those stars in there. And certainly before some of them are, are, are 45 years old, how do you get those stars in there, either by development or, or, or attractive packaging? Yeah. That's probably hard to do with a with everybody voting on on, on a full league basis. Yeah, it's true. In some sense, like, you know, it, we do have a little bit of a kind of what do we want to be when we grow up problem, right? Which is, do we want to be a selling league? So for example, I mean, you, you know, you have clubs like historically Atalanta or Udinese in Serie A, who, whose whole business model is not to try and compete to win, but it's to compete to sell players onto the Premier League or to... We've changed that now on a lot of... I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. That has historically been the case. And similarly, you have clubs in Spain and clubs in Germany, et cetera, who's, who, are never, who know they're not going to compete with Bayern Munich yes. or Dortmund right. for, the, for the championship, but who are, are going to play to sell players on. And that may be a function, that may be a way that MLS plays in the global market on a, on a, broader, on a broader scale. Well, this is the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. So I want uh, to talk about the value that uh, you brought um, in terms of analytics you know, to your teams. Uh, Jerry, when you bought Toulouse, it was uh, playing in France's second division. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did you get the team? How did you leverage analytics to get it back to League One? Yeah, look, I, I'd say there, there is also a, a facile notion about analytics. Uh, just to be clear, everybody uses that data today. Um, we have a data company called Zealous uh, that, um, you know, we all get the same data feeds, but I think the way they use that data, I think, is somewhat proprietary to them. It's really interesting at the end of the day. You know, when you look at Toulouse, um, I think we have players from 18 different countries, and really that, that, that squad was put together solely through data analytics, not, not a lot of scouting. Um, and it was an experiment to see, and, and within a year, you know, we got promoted. We're playing right now. We're middle of League One, and I'd say we probably are, uh, we're playing at a level that is two and a half times what our net transfer uh, payroll is. Yeah. And so that's, also, Skynet is running Toulouse, huh? Right, right exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, but look, I mean, that's, it's a smaller team, and, right, and, yeah. and, 
but it is instructive, though. I mean, okay. I, I definitely think, I definitely think that um, uh, data has more and more of a role to play, but it's going to be a hybrid, particularly the bigger teams, it's going to be a hybrid between the, the, the human touch and the data touch. Yeah. So, Mitch, what role did you and analytics play in the run-up to your recent MLS Cup victory? Yeah, we, we built a, a data practice. Um, interestingly, you know, I went on kind of a tour around the league when I, when I joined the ownership group and sort of all the friends I had made here at the conference, I had sort of picked their brains about best practices, and they were probably overly generous and probably regret it in, re in retrospect, given how competitive we've been. Um, they sort of opened the kimono and told me sort of what, what, how, what, what I should do, basically, in terms of building that data practice. And interestingly, it was, I thought they were going to tell me, oh, develop a game model, figure out how to, be how, to, how to analyze your competition, et cetera. They didn't. They said, look, you're in a ruthless salary cap league with, where, you're, where you really can only afford 14 or 15 decent players, you need to keep your best 11 on the field at all times. And so over-invest in sports science, over-invest in uh, you know, sleep, tra physical training, uh, nutrition, other things like that that you wouldn't think you, you would need to invest in necessarily. You would think that you'd be applying sort of the sexier kinds of analytics that, that we talk about at this conference. And in fact, that's paid huge dividends for us because we've been able to keep our best players on the, on the pitch and, we, and, and it makes a lot of difference in a league with the kind of constraints we operate under. I think that's a great point. You know, when we bought the Celtics in 2003, um, they didn't have any data analytics and we had all read the, the Billy Bean book and we said, can we apply this to basketball? So we hired actually Daryl Morey from hmm. MIT. Yeah. Um, Co-founder of this conference. Co-founder of this conference and, and uh, and then he hired Mike Zarin, who's with us still today. And we started to build these kinds of models, uh, proprietary models, and, and Jerry's right. The data's out there, but I think the key is how do you analyze the data and, and, and what's relevant and what's not relevant. We're, we're on model 20.0 now. And the first one was very rudimentary. Yeah. It kind of said rebounding was undervalued, you know, was the, was the output of that. Now it's, it's incredibly sophisticated, proprietary with where does somebody shoot from? What are the percentages? How, how does that help a team? So that's been enormously valuable. I think football has started to do that, and certainly in Italy it hasn't taken wide scale yet. But we actually we actually have hired analytics an analytics person in Atalanta, and we brought the whole sports science team over to the Celtics, and they met with their counterparts. And there's just a lot of similarities between basketball and football um, in terms of conditioning, uh, load management, all those same passing the ball, accurate passing. So. We're porting those over to Atalanta, and the Atalanta management's been very open to that. Lee Congerton, our general manager, and Luca Parcassi have been fantastic. So we've got a great, and I'm, I'm sure that happens in the multi-club strategy that mm -hmm. you have as well. The one thing you can share is, is, is how you look at players, how the analytics are, and, 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 what, and what that, how that affects the club. So I think it's huge. Great. So I have some questions uh, from the audience. Keep the, your questions coming. Um, uh, it's, this one's for, actually for Jerry. Uh, it says, in what ways does the possibility of a European Super League affect your view on the operating model and the exit strategy for AC Milan and uh, Liverpool? No, not at all. I, look, the Super League as a phenomenon was a failure, so it's not as instructive to talk about that. What is instructive is to ask the question, why did it happen? And it happened because, you know, it's the same phenomenon you have in the States in certain leagues. In baseball, there's a big market, small market tension. Um, you, you noted the tension in MLS. It's the same thing in Europe. Uh, the tension in Europe is uh, the Premier League versus the continent. That's why it happened. You know, the thing about sports is that um, you, you can't buy 
championships. And as much as I would love to win the Scudetto every year and win Champions League every year, if we did that, that actually is counter countered to what our job is. Our job is to make a return on this investment. And if the same groups won every year, that would not work, right? Um, that, would, that would actually be value um, dilutive. Um, what we can control is the, to lower the amplitude and the volatility of performance. So the thing I find phen phenomenal is that a lot of guys get into sports and they think that the goal is to win championships. Well, yes, I mean, we all want to win. But that's not, if you're looking at it purely unemotionally as an investor, the goal is to be consistently performing. The only person I've seen who sort of has been able to get away from that a little bit is, is Jerry in Dallas who is just a phenomenon in, in, in and of himself and a genius in the way he, he does what he does. But, you know, he, that's one of the most valued teams in, in history and, and they haven't, had, they haven't got, won a Super Bowl in a, in a long time. But so the, the thing on the Super League or answering the question is that it, that, that is a distraction. What, what, what we have to focus on is being competitive not only within Serie A, but also helping Serie A be competitive relative to La Liga and, and England. And as I noted, the media revenue differential uh, you know, guys like Steve, myself, a handful of others, we should get together in Syria. We were talking about this before. And we should think about how we can help Syria, you know, get the right kind of low, uh, domestic and international media contracts to lower that delta. And if we do that, you know, it'll enhance the entire, you know, FIFA system because, you know, the continent will start to, you know, become more competitive to England. Yeah. Uh, another question, uh, it says, as we're talking about the growing valuations in sports, how are you as investors thinking about women's sports? Mitch? Yeah, yeah we, I, I, I'm really encouraged by a lot of what's going on, particularly the NWSL uh, in, on, on the football side has been really interesting. And we have a, a club that plays in our stadium that we share a lot of facilities with, Angel City, um, but it's 100% women-owned. Um, and it's a, a really a kind of a great community asset in, in, in the way you were talking about before. So um, I think that's really interesting. I've, I've taken a look at the WNBA just uh, through, through some friends, but is there an opportunity there? I'm not really sure as much about that as I, I think, I think soccer is maybe potentially more viable as a, in, at least in the US. And certainly we've seen what's happened in Europe. I don't know if you've followed the, the Euros, uh, the, the women's Euros, but the attendance in England was off the charts. The, the viewership on television was off the charts. And I think that's super encouraging for the future from a value perspective. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on, on that as well. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the need for programming, people love you know, real-time programming and competitive sports and, and the women's, certainly the women's soccer leagues have been fantastic, you know, viewing experiences. And I think all these leagues can do that. So that's, that may be the next wave of creating, you know, more compelling programming beyond the, beyond the ones we have today. Yeah, the other aspect is, um around that dynamic, which is something we have been thinking a lot about, is what we're doing with the XFL. I mean, the XFL, the Spring Football League, we launched with Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia, is the first professional sports league owned by an African-American and a woman. And if you look at our front office, um, it, it, the diversity there, particularly with women, um, is pretty profound. And so, you know, given our relationship with the NFL and our relationship with Disney, I think that's another great way to sort of get more uh, women involvement in sports. So uh, another one from the audience. How does the apparent trend of younger fans focusing their support more on players than teams impact your outlook on sports investing? That's an interesting question, a very interesting question. I, I think the, the good thing about that is 
it's now made all the NBA club, clubs competitive. So it used to be every single star wanted to be in a large media market because that's where they got extra ancillary revenues. Uh, with with um, the internet, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, they've, they've made players from all sorts of teams global players. And, and therefore, there's more fan interest. And, and, and so I have no problem with that. I mean, I, I would like a system where we could develop and keep the players longer. And I think that that's would be really great for the, for the NBA um, because it just creates that bond. You know, when, when we grew up, the same players were on the Red Sox and on the Celtics for Bill Russell was you know, 13 years and Havlicek and, and uh, all, the, all, all the players stayed their whole careers. So we've lost some of that. Uh, but, but, I, but I think we can get some of that back with, with structuring it so that the players can make ancillary revenues and be, be in the smaller markets and, and, and have a career with the community. So uh, I, w- I want to you know, ask you guys to take a step back because um, we have many uh, future sports investors uh, in the room here. And um, you know, I want you to kind of think back and kind of knowing what you know now, um, what would you have liked to tell your 20-something self? You know, again, with with respect to, uh, you know, how you got to be an investor in, in sports. What you know, what what have you learned? You know, kind of, you know, through it all that uh, you can impart uh, to, to the folks here. Maybe Mitch, I'll start with you. Well, I keep coming to the Sloan Conference would be my uh, would would be my short answer. But uh, no, I mean, I, I I don't know that I necessarily have a good answer to that one. I I, I think um, learning to be a good investor generally learning sort of the, the nature of, of these things and understanding valuations. And I think Silicon Valley has been really useful for that because valuation in Silicon Valley is historically very seldomly correlated with discounted cash flows, right? Like, um, it's, a, it's a lot about, you know, the... Although we're kind of back to the future now on that. We're coming back, but we're still not there. Uh, <laughs> trust me, I'm, I'm living through the AI boom in Silicon Valley these days, and it is non-correlated with discounted cash flows. So... Um, so I think that's been actually, that was good practice for sports, um, weirdly enough. Jerry? Look, I mean, the, I got lucky with the model that we developed with Steinbrenner and, and just kept perpetuating, which was to partner with the rights holders and build these businesses around them driven by cash flow and long-term contracts, right? Um, if I, you know, my, the advice to my 20-year-old self would have been, I, I did, I created Yes with Steinbrenner when I was 33 years old, so it's my 33-year-old self would have been, um, the inkling that we had a few years later to go buy Liverpool at a $350 million valuation. Um, Goldman shut me down on that, and um, you know, we, we, we would have done that a lot earlier, and, and that, would have been, that would have been pretty good. Formula One's another one. I mean, I couldn't get comfortable with the Concord Agreement and the, and the situation with, with the pre-Liberty formulations around Formula One, um, but you know, the, the, that period, you could, make, you could take an uh, uh, irrational risk, to your point on, on the private equity uh, involvement, and do really well. Yeah. I'd say today you can't. Right. Uh, so, Steve? I would say you know, follow your passion, and there are lots of different avenues into sports and sports ownership. And so um, you can come up through the analytics side, you can come up through the media side, you can come up through the legal side. So, um, but you really have to be passionate about it. And if you're passionate about it and, and uh, really, really study and, and care, there's, there's, there can be great success. Great. So I have one final question um, for each of our panelists. We've been talking a lot about valuations. What team will command a higher price, Manchester United or the Washington Commanders? Steve, I'll start with you. I say the Commanders. Yeah. Jerry? 
It's going to be close, but I'll probably agree with that. Yeah. All right. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll check back in a, in a year and uh, see, uh, see who was right. Well, please join me in thanking our all-star panel for their wisdom.